Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, the GigaCity company, a philanthropic community partner since 1922 and proud supporter of numerous community organizations. More information at smithville.com. And School of Public Health Bloomington, Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life publichealth.indiana.edu. Welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Bob Salzberg, editor of the Herald Times, along with co-host Sarah Whitmire, who is the News Bureau Chief for WFIU and WTIU. And today we're going to be discussing the school referenda that were on the ballot during this week's primaries. We have Four guests with us. Two are in the studio. Um, Claire McInerney, who's State Impact Indiana reporter here at WFIU and around the state. She's an education reporter. And Superintendent David Schaefer of the Brown County Schools is here with us. Also joining us by phone are Larry DeBoer, an economist and tax policy expert from Purdue University, and Kathy Friend, the Chief Financial Officer at Fort Wayne Community Schools. If you want to join the conversation, give us a call at 812-855-0811 here in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348. And you can join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, or you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. We have a lot of voices to get on the air today. I want to start with Claire. And uh, Claire, perhaps you can sort of outline why these referenda are so important these days in Indiana. Sure. So in the biggest thing is we started seeing them become more popular starting around 2008 when the state enacted property tax caps. Um, and as you know, schools used to be ma- majorly funded by property values in their area. So a, a school district in an area with houses that had higher property values would get more for their schools. And so the state put some caps down wanting to make it more equal and not um, rate, you know, keep taxes low. But that meant this revenue stream really decreased for schools. And so we've seen more and more school districts every year, every primary and in the November election, ask voters to raise their property taxes again to help pay for schools. And I think something interesting that is to know is a, a referendum used to be kind of rare and it would be used for something like, uh, we want to build a brand new middle school and we need a little more money. But this primary, the things they wanted to use money for, um, I talked to superintendents and CFOs from every district posing one and things they wanted was to put AC in schools, continue continue salaries, raise salaries for teachers, reinstate insurance benefits that had to be cut, um, add pre-K classes, put security uh, entrances in. So there are things that are that would have come from a general fund and are necessary, but now they're depending on these referendum to make those things happen. Mm-hmm. And I want to ask uh, Dr. DeBoer from uh, Purdue about you know this change in tax policy in the state, and do you think it's worked out the way that uh, the legislature had intended? Well, that depends on what they intended, I guess. <laughs> uh, it's uh, you know it's hard to put yourself in the, in the heads. Uh, I, I think. Certainly, it has reduced property taxes. The property tax is about $800 million lower uh, than they would have been. And they decided that the way to do that was to, as they put it, uproot a particular uh, use of property taxes. And so they eliminated the school general fund uh, from property taxes. And, you know, if the goal was to reduce property taxes, well, it certainly did. Uh, Whether everybody considered um, the consequences on the 
spending side of reducing revenues by that much. Uh, I'm not sure, but I'm, I agree with Claire that I think uh, certainly one of the reasons why we see so many more referenda now than we did before 2008 uh, has to do with uh, the tax caps and the rather slow growth in state aid that replaced uh, the tax cap revenue. Mm-hmm. And then uh, we have two uh, two people representing school corporations who actually just had a referenda on the ballot, so I want to uh, ask them about, you know, David Schaefer first and then Kathy Friend from Fort Wayne who's joining us by phone. So David Schaefer from Brown County, uh, what did you ask for and, you know, how did you go about sort of campaigning to make sure you could get it? What would happen had you not gotten the referendum? We, we asked for $0.08 cents per $100 of assessed valuation. I think of the 10 referendum ours was the, the least uh, amount requested. Um, we went about the campaign based upon uh, our, our general fund need to uh, improve our teacher salaries, make them more competitive. We've not really done much for our teachers in the last four or five years, and we've seen some uh, we've seen some loss of some people who've gone to other districts where they could make a higher salary. Um, we felt like that if we did not pass the referendum, we would have to do some reduction in expenditures, and that would have meant cutting staff, cutting programs. That would have meant larger. Uh, class sizes, and um, we've had some very good successes in Brown County in the past few years, and so uh, I'm sure that was at least a factor in some of the minds of the voters, but our our, uh, our community folks uh, uh, stepped up and have supported the referendum, and, and, and we're very, very pleased because in the, in the, let's call it the sweepstakes to keep good teachers and hire good teachers, we're seeing fewer and fewer uh, young people enter the field of education. So that's making the recruitment of quality teachers much more competitive. And uh, that, was a, that was an issue that we used in the campaign as well. All right. And uh, Kathy Friend in Fort Wayne, what, what were the uh, reasons that you decided that you need a referendum? Well, our referendum was the second phase of a two-phase capital program. And um, our capital projects fund has been hit significantly because of the tax caps. Um, And so in order to keep our buildings environmentally sound for our students and um, keep our roof replacement program going and so forth, we put this plan together. Um, It raised the tax rate a little bit in 2012. And then because some other debt is falling off in in this 2016 referendum, um, we had an overall debt rate that's flat. Um, we have 51 schools, and of those, 16 still don't have complete air conditioning, so that is something that we really wanted to take care of as well. But it, it's a basic needs project. It's better lighting, better security, um, HVAC replacement, roof replacement. There's no bells and whistles in our program. So, I mean, these are there are two different kinds, is capital referendums and operating referendums, basically. Claire, you wanted to make a comment about that? Oh, sure. And I think this year especially, um, and I don't know if Brown County and Fort Wayne were one of those schools, but a lot of the superintendents we talked to said this year was especially bad because not only have the property tax caps hurt districts all over the state, but the, the legislature changed the school funding formula last year. And so if you are a school district that has a high concentration of kids from low-income families, you used to get more money from the state, and now that has decreased a little bit. And so they, they felt like it was a double whammy where now they're asking for, we'd like to give our teachers health insurance. Can you help us by raising your property tax cap? So, and we're seeing the more basic needs coming into these referendum rather than um, 
what we used to see of the capital projects, or Mm -hmm. we want to bring in a new technology program, so we need more money in the general fund. It's the basic needs. Just to follow on that really quickly, so Mm -hmm. there's less money going to schools that have higher levels of of poverty. Where's more of the money going to? What they did in the simplest form in in the school funding formula was they gave every school the same base amount. And if you had different populations of students, and that includes kids who need free meals, kids who need English language services, and kids who need special education services, you don't get as much extra for those kids. So that's kind of how it shifted. But every school got a similar base amount. But I think because of the property tax caps, it wasn't enough to make up. So it was kind of this double whammy Mm -hmm. this year. Okay. If you have questions or comments about uh, education funding and about how schools are, are seeking referenda, referenda um, just give us a call at 812-855-0811 or 1-877-285-9348. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash Noon Edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. And Larry, I'm hoping you can sort of talk to. This year we had eight of these that passed, which seems unusually high. I think it, what Claire used to be around 50 percent, something mm-hmm. like that. So why is it that you know voters are coming around and passing these more frequently? Well, that's a good question, um, and, and I've got some data on that. Uh, before May 2011, only 40 percent of the referenda passed, and since May in 2000, May 2011, and since two thirds of them have passed. Uh, and since passage rate in May is greater than passage rate in November, uh, I think the 80% uh, that we had this time, 8 out of 10, was a continuation of that. And, you know, one of the reasons I guess we can speculate, uh, one is that the, the recession is receding uh, into the past and the economy is doing better. And a recession is a, is a very good reason for uh, the, in voters' minds to go in and say, uh, yes, we support our schools, but not now. Uh, and so I think that's part of it. Uh, I think the... Uh, Realization that uh, school budgets are under stress uh, is is another one, both because state aid is growing slowly and the tax caps. And then I also I'm I'm almost certain that the campaigns have become more sophisticated uh, since then. I think originally, especially in the first two or three or four elections, the uh, school boards and superintendents just tossed the issue out there and said, "Well, surely we'll get support." And when they didn't. They realize that this has got to be a professionally run campaign, and an awful lot of the school corporations now are hiring consultants and using technology and uh, and making a great effort. That's really, I think that's probably had an impact. That's really interesting to me, this idea that school districts can't just take it to their community and say, what do you think, that they're actually hiring consultants. So maybe all the panel can sort of speak to that. Brown County, Fort Wayne, if you've done it. I know when I talked to every superintendent of these 10 districts, everyone said they had a pack. And it was made up of community members and teachers. And so obviously money for the campaign wasn't coming from the school district, but these community members would buy in and help say, like, please vote on question two. Um, But I remember, I think it was the superintendent at Wabash, and theirs didn't pass. He said to me on the phone, this is crazy. I have gone from becoming a superintendent dealing with educational matters to becoming a politician. I'm knocking on doors every Saturday and Sunday. Um, I'm working with this PAC. And he's like, I almost feel like the president of a university trying to get money rather than focusing on education. Are you feeling that? Yeah, absolutely. We certainly uh, used a consultant in this campaign. And, uh, you know, the, her analogy is correct. We, we knocked on doors. We we called voters and called voters back a second time. We, hit, you know, we did a mailing. We had to raise uh, money from uh, private uh, donations in order to fund the political action uh, committee. So 
uh, it was uh, enormously consuming as far as time and effort uh, was concerned. And um, I would concur that I don't particularly like that. I didn't. I don't like going to the voters and asking them to uh, approve a property tax increase because I, you know, I will say I believe that uh, adequate funding of the public schools is the responsibility of the General Assembly. In our case in Brown County, um, we're faced with declining enrollment. And so uh, in the funding formula, the winners are school districts that are growing districts, and the losers in the formula are those of us who have declining enrollment. And so, um, you know, we really were left with little choice but to go the campaign route and ask uh, ask our voters to approve um, the general fund referendum. That's the thing I should have mentioned when I talked about the funding formula is in theory every school gets a base amount but it's based on student. So if you're in a rural area or an area that isn't seeing enrollment that's going to hurt you. You're not you only get awarded if your enrollment is increasing. So that's the other way with in conjunction with property tax caps mm -hmm. that Brown, a lot of schools are struggling. Brown County is, is a rural district that is, um, I would say, has, a, has a, a, an acute shortage of affordable housing, and we have essentially an economy that's based upon tourism, so we don't have jobs right in the, in the community, and, and we lose folks who move out of the community to get closer to their, to their em, employment. Mm -hmm. So, and yet, I guess we could say here's Hamilton Southeastern, the fastest growing school corporation in the state, also going for a tax referendum. And in fact, this is the fourth one that they have now passed. And that's Carmel. Uh, so it's, not not, exclusively, uh -huh. yeah. it's, it's not exclusively folks that are declining. The, the folks that are right. growing are, are looking to it as well. Mm -hmm. So I've heard the criticism that these referenda create sort of these haves and have-nots that some districts have an abundance of riches and some are just, like you said, knocking on doors begging for money. So in that case, is that not really the truth if, you're, if you have Carmel asking for one too? Well, no, yeah, you're right. I mean, the thing with the property tax caps and the funding formula, I haven't found one school district that, that said this, this was the right choice to help us. Those suburban, you know, more wealthy areas, they struggled super hard with the property tax caps because think about it, if those really expensive homes were funding a multi-language program and a technology lab and then all of a sudden that's capped, that's, a, that's tons more money than a more rural area that they lost. So that's why they're going for these referendums. Mm -hmm. and, and Kathy Friend, how about in Fort Wayne? What was the campaign like? And uh, you know, did you have to hire a consultant and were you working 24-7 you know, trying to make sure this got passed? Yeah, we did not hire a consultant. We did everything with um, volunteers, but we did have a pack, and um, we spent about $40,000 um, getting our message out, and it included mailers and social media, but we did a lot of things that didn't cost money. We went to every Rotary, every community meeting that we could get to. We held up signs at um, parent pickup lanes off of school property because we can't be on school property. We did phone banks. Um, we just, we just did everything we could to get the message out. We tried to get a lot of um, media attention where they would come and look at the schools and, you know, for the news. And um, so it, it definitely is just like a political campaign. Um, but um, I think there was a lot of value to it. The community learned a lot about our district through the process. And, and I'd, I'd like to speak to the operating um, referendum issue um, because, frankly, I would like to do both um, because I am a – large the largest urban school district in the state with a declining enrollment we have a huge voucher enrollment um 
issue here in our community. And um, I, I also could use additional operating dollars, but we had to pick. You know, I, I don't think our community would necessarily agree to two different referendums. So we had to pick what was, the, what was our biggest issue, and we felt that our buildings um, had to be addressed first before we could consider asking the community for an operating referendum. So it, it really it puts us in a bind. Um, but um, I think, you know, we, we got 72% of the vote on our referendum, so we feel really good about the confidence our community has in our school district now. Mm-hmm. So, so, Larry, perhaps you can talk to the rules for seeking these referenda. If can't, I mean, you can seek to at a time, which seems odd to me just hearing that being said, but how often can you do it? What is it capped at a certain percentage? Yeah, well, um, with the, uh, the tax referenda, uh, which are, you know, for general funds and general purposes, um, they, if you pass one, uh, you can increase the rate uh, by the designated amount uh, that's, that's in the, uh, on the ballot. It says how much, uh, and it, it can last for seven years, uh, which I think was interesting because six, the, the six tax referenda that passed, or six of the tax referenda that passed, looked to me to be reauthorizations, that each one of those had one six or seven years ago that passed. And I think uh, we've been at this now long enough that we're going to get some reauthorizations uh, coming along. Um, the capital projects referenda um, is, was the new thing uh, in 2008. And Indiana, you may remember, used to have the uh, petition remonstrance system, which was unique to our state. Uh, but now we've joined uh, the 47 other states that use uh, referenda for capital projects. And uh, there are some uh, rather low bars that have to be passed. Uh, I think the, uh, the, the you need to gather 100 signatures, I think it is, uh, in order to put the thing on the ballot. So it almost go, automatically goes onto the ballot. And uh, and if you pass, then you can uh, uh, then you can go ahead with uh, the bond issue and uh, and do the capital project. And if uh, it uh, doesn't pass, uh, you have to wait a year and come back uh, again if if you like with uh, a, a, the same or a different referendum. I want to follow up on that in a, in a minute, but we've got a phone call, so I'm going to go to the phones first with uh, Stan from Bloomington. Stan? Hi. I, I wonder if there's been any discussion uh, either in academia or in the legislature about comparing our rate of growth in quality of education versus uh, neighboring states. Uh, obviously, lack of money affects uh, um, recruitment of, of teachers and, and uh, the kind of programs that help students uh, become better uh, uh, students. And, and I haven't read anything about that. I wonder if anything's been done. So what's what's the question? How we compare we it to yeah. other states? School funding is one of those things that is totally different in every single state. Um, I was just part of a project with an NPR education kind of coalition where we all shared what it looks like in different states. And it's fascinating how some people will pour money into their public schools. I think Indiana is very um, unique in the fact that we have a very robust voucher program to send kids to a private school if they meet ac- or, uh, income levels. And then the charter options that are also paid for with state money. Um, but aren't part of a district. So I think it's one of those things where we're unique in our state where the money is spread out thinly to a a bunch of different avenues. But I'm not quite sure if we compared to Illinois or Ohio. I haven't done that. I'm going to ask Larry DeBoer for a comment on this because it seems to me that in tax policies, you know, some legislatures might – 
I mean, the legislature might say, well, if we keep property taxes low, we're going to attract more business. And that there are, you know, they, they have their own political reasons for wanting to set tax policy in various ways. Larry? Well, that's certainly true. Um, you know, all, as Claire says, all of the uh, systems are different across the state, but they're also a combination of state aid and property taxes. Um, and there's been many, many uh, court cases uh, over the years um, asking about or, or, or challenging the equity of uh, using property taxes for schools uh, because it, the, the, the property tax resources across the school districts uh, vary so much. Some have high-priced houses, some have low-priced houses, but even more important, some have a lot of business property, which is part of the tax base, and, and some don't. And so the assessed value per pupil can vary quite a bit. That made for quite a bit of inequity. And so the state aid was often constructed to offset that sort of thing. But then you've got the problem of, of um, if property taxes are, are particularly high, uh, there is some evidence that uh, that does discourage business activity. And without much doubt, uh, one of the things that uh, we did with these tax caps, uh, not just to stabilize the, the tax bills of, of homeowners, but to reduce property taxes and try to encourage uh, firm location, business location. So uh, I think those, all of those issues enter into it, and, and especially because schools are by far the biggest expenditure of local government and of state government. So what happens to the schools influences tax policy generally. Mm-hmm. Claire? I think we're getting, what, we're in year eight of referendum becoming a common thing. As Larry said, we're seeing people renew them. I think in this next budget year, it would be interesting to see if the legislature picks up whether property tax caps are doing more good than not because it's almost become districts like Carmel and Brown County and they're all different that are asking for these money these this money just to operate um, if referenda are the new funding stream is that how we want to go forward because so many schools have them in place now mm-hmm. is there uh, no if I could just say one thing about about that uh, mm-hmm. you know um, so far, we've had, and by my count anyway, 97 school corporations that have tried referenda since 2008, which means that two-thirds of the school corporations haven't even tried. Mm-hmm. And I wonder what that says. You know, do, do those folks think there's just no prayer of even uh, mm-hmm. of winning, and so they haven't tried, or do they not see the problems? That I find hard to believe. But I think one of the uh, one of the things we're seeing is is the beginning of some inequities in who who can go forward and get a referendum done and who cannot. And, and we may be developing some haves and have-not situations here. We're going to have to take a short break. Uh, you're listening to Noon Edition. We're talking about school funding and particularly about uh, school corporations that are seeking referenda to help uh, support funding for the schools. Uh, we'll be right back after a short break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville Fiber, online at smithville.com, and IU School of Public Health Bloomington, online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiunews.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each weekday afternoon. 
It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIUNews.org. We're talking about school funding today on Noon Edition, and we have four guests with us. Claire McInerney, State Impact Indiana, education reporter. Larry DeBoer, who's an economist and tax policy expert from Purdue University. Superintendent David Schaefer of Brown County Schools, and Kathy Friend, the CFO at Fort Wayne Community Schools. You can join the conversation at 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at wfiu.org slash noon edition, and you can follow us on Twitter at noon edition. You know, I'm really interested in this idea of, of people following up with, with repeat uh, efforts to have a referendum on the ballot, referendum on the ballot. Um, in Monroe County, uh, 2010, I think the referendum passed in 2010. There were a lot of there's a lot of concern about budget cuts that were coming. It was passed for six years, so now um, it's going to be on the ballot again in November. Well, Kathy can talk to that. She told me mm-hmm. that this was phase two, right, mm-hmm. Kathy? You guys, they approved yeah. a first phase, yeah. Yeah. Yes, uh, they were both capital campaigns, though. Um, phase one was in 2012. Or, yeah, phase one was in 2012, and we actually made sure that at that time we informed the community that it was uh, phase one of two phases, so that there wouldn't be any surprise when we came back three years later. And um, I think that that was helpful because they didn't think we were just coming back to the well again. That. Um, they knew it was part of a two-phase project and that um, there was a plan for how it was going to impact their taxes um, based on other debt going off. And so I, I think it was a good strategy to, to keep them informed of, um, of that up front so that it helped our cause the second time around. Well, I know you told me that you guys tried to make sure you came in under budget and everything on that first phase to prove that you were using the money in a correct way, right? Yeah, we did. We came under budget by about $2 million in the first phase. And that helped lower the rate just a little bit. Um, but um, I think that that showed the community just just the effort that we showed them from phase one, that we did come in under budget. We came in on time. We had some great results to demonstrate to the community. We had open houses to show them. They could see that we were not being extravagant in what we were trying to get done. And uh, I really do think that assisted us with phase two. I think in Monroe County, there are very similar things going on. I guess I'd like to get a reaction from the rest of the panel on this because uh, six years instead of seven, they asked for, they didn't ask for quite, I think they asked for 14 cents per $100 assessed valuation. This year, in the, they're calling it a renewal. It's very, they're very clear that it's a renewal. They're asking for less money. So even if it passes, property tax rate will go down. And so, um, you know, is this a strategy where once one of these passes, that a school corporation that wants to maintain its funding is going to have to go back and ask for more? In our instance, Bob, um, for what we want to use this money for, which is to in, enhance our teacher salary levels and, and really build a, a salary model that, that will allow teachers to uh, understand if they're rated as effective or highly effective, they can expect to move up uh, the, the salary level line. Once we make a commitment in collective bargaining to a base salary program, then 
that's a commitment that is ongoing. And so um, it's my hope that we'll see some change of philosophy coming out of the General Assembly that will give us some additional assistance and not make it necessary to come back to uh, ask the voters for a renewal of the referendum. A real quick footnote, five years ago, we passed a one penny per $100 um, assessed valuation referendum to fund our adult education program called our Career Resource Center. We'll use one penny of our eight cents that we passed this time to continue that adult ed program on also. That'll be, that'll be the record for the lowest referendum ever in the state. <laughs> just to piggyback what um, Mr. Schaefer just said, um, it's I, school funding is so compl- complicated, and this leads into this teacher shortage thing that everybody's talking about. This last legislative session, I saw so many legislators say, we have to prioritize teachers, make sure they're paid well, and we get them in the schools. But then we see 10 school districts, and s- teacher salaries was one bullet thing that they wanted to use all of these referenda dollars for. I, mm-hmm. You know, if, if they have to ask their voters to pay their teachers, I mean, that goes into the school funding thing that comes from the legislature. Mm-hmm. Mm. Um, so I'm wondering, just looking at the trends of these that have passed, or, or maybe even Larry, ones that haven't even asked yet, is can we look at that and and maybe draw from that whether this they're having trouble passing these in rural areas or urban areas? Is it the affluent areas that are passing them more often? Well, I do have uh, some some what I call splits on those, just to taking a couple of variables and seeing how they've done. Um, Income makes a difference. If you look at county income, uh, the per capita income, if you've got a per capita income, uh, more than 38,000, 64% of the referenda have passed. If it's less than 38,000, 45% have passed. So it seems like uh, folks who have a greater to a ability to pay are more willing to say yes. Um, looks like, um, I, I keep finding this, that uh, if you've got a lot of business property or commercial apartments, uh, in your tax base, uh, you tend to pass, or, or more uh, referenda pass. But if you've got a lot of homeowners and if you've got a lot of farmland uh, in there, uh, it's less likely to pass. And I put that down to the fact that homeowners and uh, farmers live in the school corporation, and so they will actually pay the tax rate increase, and so maybe they, they think twice, whereas an awful lot of businesses are owned by investors all over the world, and, and commercial apartments... Uh, you've got a lot of renters who may not perceive that their rents depend on uh, on property taxes to some degree. Uh, so I think uh, the the kind of property that you've got, and if it's farmland, that puts the rural at a uh, at a disadvantage. So there are uh, some patterns uh, uh, going on there. Let me point out one other thing, and and that is that uh, uh, only one school corporation that has ever won has ever lost again. That makes sense. Mm-hmm. Bartholomew County won in 2008, and then they've lost twice since then. But every other school corporation that has ever won has always won subsequently. And so I think we've got this group of school corporations that are either well-positioned or well-run or know how to do a campaign or, or something. But uh, uh, there's a group that, uh, that gets it done. Well, Larry, with Bartholomew County, I know last year it was about pre-K. So is that different than what they originally, because it, it, it might have been two different issues. Well, it is. And, and you know, they Bartholomew County got in in November 2008, which was the very first mm-hmm. uh, of these uh, capital projects referenda. And I am convinced that people didn't know what they were voting about. 
That's the thing. Uh, you look at these, and we try to do stories yeah. leading up to the election because you read yeah. it and you have no idea. Um, <laughs> when it says eight cents per assessed value of 100, yeah. it's yeah. very confusing. <laughs> it, well, it is. And, and, you know, if you remember back in 2000, I don't know if you were here, Claire, in 2008. No. <laughs> back in 2008, the bill passed. It came out of nowhere, and all of a sudden, here on the November ballot were these things that had never shown up before, and uh, four out of five of them passed that year. And then the very next set, uh, just months later, 10 out of 12 lost. And so I think that, that originally there was some confusion on the part of the voters as to what these things might have been about. You know, in terms of getting assistance from the from the legislature, uh, no financial assistance, but the legislature did make a little change in the way the ballot language uh, has to appear. You know, right now, up until now, you've had to say, uh, here's an extra rate. You know, here's our 61-cent rate or our 8-cent rate or our one-penny rate, and, and we're going to add that on. Now, if it's a renewal, you'll be able to say something about, hey, your property tax rate won't go up. And uh, I think that's a response to the, the, the renewals that are going to come up uh, uh, now in the next few years uh, after the six and seven years have, have elapsed. Larry, I wanted to ask also, uh, my recollection is that, that the, uh, you know, the economy went so the recession sort of occurred at the same time that these tax policy changes were going into place and the property tax had always been considered you know, the most stable tax to fund government or to fund schools or to fund everything. What impact uh, do you think the, that the the downturn in the economy in 2007, 2008, 2009 had on funding for schools? I think it's uh, quite a bit. Uh, first of all, the property tax is, is not as stable as it used to be. When you combine trending, which means we try to adjust assessed values every year for what's happening with uh, property values, uh, with the tax caps, which means that when tax rates go up, um, you collect less of your levy, what we had was a decline in the market value of property, which was reflected in a decline in assessed value, which forced rates up, which made the, uh, the less of the levy uh, collectible and, and increased tax cap credits. So we had an impact of the combination of several policy changes plus the recession really did reduce revenue. But maybe more important, uh, income and sales tax revenues were reduced on the state level by quite a bit, and for about five years, uh, state appropriations for education and everything else were effectively frozen. And we have not recovered. Uh, we have not made up the difference. You know, we've been increasing it, but uh, our state government is smaller now than it was relative to the size of our economy, smaller now than it was back in 2007. And since state school aid is about half of the general fund budget, uh, state school aid has, has gone up more slowly. So I think those two things right there are, are pretty big results of the recession. Let, let's remember also, Larry, correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe it was 2009 when the General Assembly completely removed property taxes as a funding mechanism for general funds. And at that point in time, the state took over completely the funding of, of the general fund. And, and what, that, what that really meant was that the General Assembly then had complete control of every general fund in the state of Indiana. Is that cor am I yeah. correct on that? Well, you're right. That's that, that's what happened. And, you know, we, we raised the sales tax, if you remember, from 6 to 7 percent yep. as a way to um, make up the funding loss from the general fund. And at that very moment, <laughs> the recession hit and the sales tax that was supposed to bring in a billion dollars brought in hundreds of millions less. 
and so the appropriation for schools was frozen, and I'm sure you remember uh, you didn't get your full uh, state aid there. There was uh, uh, reversions uh, uh, that were effectively uh, budget or, or aid cuts uh, coming out of the governor's office. And, and always in the past, when the economy recovered, the General Assembly would then appropriate monies back to make up for those lost revenues. And this last time in 2009, that never happened. Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and I think that has happened in general. Uh, always in the, or in the past, uh, we, we allowed the state budget to accelerate back to the old path, the pre-recession path. But, but this time, and, and let's face it, this is what the voters voted for. This time we said, yep. no, let's, let's cut income taxes, let's cut the inheritance tax, and let's, uh, let's not recover. Let's, let's keep the state government smaller. We're talking about uh, funding schools today on Noon Edition. If you want to join us, uh, we have about 15 minutes to go. 812-855-0811 in Bloomington or 1-877-285-9348 outside of the Bloomington calling area. You can also join the live chat at WFIU.org slash Noon Edition. And you can follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. I'm wondering, is this, is this the new norm now? Are schools beginning to sort of figure out how to operate with, with less money? And well, I would say that we've all uh, tightened our belts and constricted. And, and, and what happens, in, in my estimation, is that you, you, know, you cut a, a, a um, teacher aid here, you cut a teacher position there, you slightly increase your class sizes at, you know, at, at levels where it can be done without dramatically impacting um, the quality of education. And pretty soon, there's not a lot of, of uh, fat left to cut out. And, and, and I guess I would say, feel like in Brown County, we're uh, in a position where we're at least nearing that. And uh, that was also at least a decision that we made. If we continue to deal in Brown County, with declining enrollment, and we've we've been on a on a on a slide uh, for a number of years, uh, over 10 years, where we've had declining enrollments year after year after year. Um, that was another reason why we felt like we needed to ask for uh, the voters for the referendum money. So it's not like it's leveling off. It's not like you can get used to it because it you continue to feel more impact from all these different things that are contributing. The other thing I would add is we are, we are, we are a rural, countywide school corporation. A, a, another typical way that a school district might reduce expenditures is to close a school building. We have three elementary schools that are spread out in the county. We have um, some boys and girls that are on a one-way bus ride of over an hour for, the, for one way. And so if we were to attempt to use the method of closing a school, we would in increase our time on buses for boys and girls. And, and, and I don't think our voters in Brown County would be supportive of that, nor would they be supportive, in my estimation, if we, if we tried to consolidate several schools into one new building and then try to get that passed. Another thing I hadn't heard of until recently is school districts reacting to the school funding formula change and property tax caps being like, you know what, maybe there's grants out there. Um, and I know 
up in Goshen, the the funding formula really hurt them in their English learner program. So they're now applying for federal grants so they can teach English learners. Um, I know Argos Community Schools is one of the two that didn't pass, and they told us that might be something they start looking for because in terms of what they can get from the state and from their voters, they can't depend on it. So that's something I was surprised by. Like They're looking outside of Indiana to see if there's other ways to get money. Mm-hmm. So. Kathy Friend, I want to bring you back on and, and just ask, you know, as a CFO of, uh, I think you said that Fort Wayne's the largest urban school corporation in, in the state now. I mean, what, what keeps you up at night? I mean, what, are, what other areas of, you know, financing the schools? Because schools are, you know, huge enterprises with all sorts of places where money has to go. You know, yeah, and I, I was going back to 2010. We we actually had uh, at that point cut 15 million dollars out of our budget when those reversions happened, and um, we closed two schools. We privatized our custodial. We did a lot of things that were really difficult, and um, people were not happy about. But that has that was imperative that we had to do those things. We're getting ready to close one more school. We just. Um, in this past school year, we decreased transportation for about 25% of our students because the tax caps are hampering our ability to um, provide transportation in our bus replacement. So it's an ongoing um, challenge that we're dealing with. Um, I think our position is, though, we aren't letting any of this take us by surprise. We do forecasting you know, the best that we can for, we look forward at least five years to try to figure out what do we have to do now so that we don't wake up one day and go, oh, my gosh, what happened? Um, the most difficult um, factor that we're dealing with right now is trying to figure out what our projected enrollment is going to be because we've lost about 2,000 students since the voucher program began. Um, we have the largest concentration of private schools in the state are located within our boundaries. And so, you know, we don't know at some point will they hit their capacity and um, that will level out. Or, um, you know, is this going to continue when new schools will be built? Um, but that's the, the biggest factor for us is the loss of enrollment because um, beyond that, we, we should be able to forecast um, what's necessary, but, but that's a difficult issue for us. Can you explain, uh, you know, to those who, you know, maybe not understand how the vouchers, you know, the, and, and with the voucher program, you know, I've heard people who are favor the voucher program when when the conversation comes up that well, it's really hurting the public schools because these students are leaving, and and I've heard you know, I mean, people will say, well, why? You know, the students are they're just going someplace else. You know, they're not the responsibility of the public school anymore. So why why does that hurt? What's the issue for you? Well, um, if if you um, look at the the state just put a report out recently, and and overall. Private enrollment has grown about 15,000 students since the uh, voucher program began, but there are 32,000 vouchers. So part of the issue is that these students didn't just all leave public school. Some of these students were already attending private school and and are eligible because of um, the the factors that are in the program now. So it's not exactly – we have over 4,600 students in our boundaries attending um, are using the voucher program, but we've only lost enrollment of about 2,000 students. So that kind of shows you we didn't, it wasn't exactly a run from the public schools to the private schools. So what it's doing is decreasing the overall pot of revenue that's available for public schools. Um, and so it, it doesn't just affect districts like mine. It affects all school districts because the pot has now gotten smaller for all of us. David? 
Yeah, I would, I would, I would agree with that. And what I was going to say was, I believe from last year to this year, the number of uh, students who have entered private schools was not significantly higher, but the expenditure that has come out of the General Assembly has been significantly higher. So what that money's going to is people who were already paying tuition for uh, private schools, and, and now they're just getting a, basically a, a tax credit uh, to do so. And, and so that means that that money really is going to folks who have found some way to afford their tuition already. And I'm not sure that's what uh, at least is the public perception of what the voucher program is all about. Yeah, the criticism of the voucher program is that the state keeps putting money into it and, you know, it's paying for people who either were already in private schools or, um, you know, the intention was to give low-income families a different option if they were at a bad school. But now the criteria is so big. It's not just you attend a failing school and you meet this income requirement. Let us pay for your private education. It's not. It's, it's a lot more expansive of the state funding private education. Mm-hmm. And the issue is the money follows the student. So when somewhere like Fort Wayne, they have 2,000 kids leave, that's $4,000-ish a kid that leaves the, the, the district that the state would have given those kids. Mm-hmm. And, and then, uh, I'd like to add to that, even though the money leaves the, our school district, not necessarily all the expenses leave the school district, yeah. because when a student, when we lose, if I lose 50 students, let's say, in a year, and I have 51 buildings, that could be an average of one student per school. And so I'm not cutting a teacher with that loss of revenue. So that, that's what makes it really difficult to manage. It's because they don't all leave neatly from one grade level in one school building. They leave from multiple, you know, we have 1,900 teachers, so it could leave from one from every teacher. Well, that doesn't, that doesn't present an area for me to cut the budget. That's what I was going to add, too. The, the schools have fixed costs, and no matter how many kids are in the building, you got to keep the lights on. And if there's a neighborhood with... Uh, uh, 30 students and you got to go an hour to pick them up on a bus and if there's only 20 students you still got to take that bus out there and pick them up and bring them back the bus cost doesn't change but now you've got uh, less revenue to support that electricity cost doesn't change but now you've got less revenue to support that when the other thing legally the public schools have to do these things no matter what right. uh, where the private schools and charter schools don't have to provide transportation or things like that um, but money's still being funneled to them mm-hmm. so that's interesting i was reading a story in wisconsin where they were sort of having this argument about the legality of all of this saying constitutionally we're obligated to provide a free education and then folks who were commenting on the article were saying but we're still doing that and this is giving you as a community the option to say we either agree with what our school is doing and want to support it or not maybe even just your reaction to that i'm sure you hear things like that when you're when you're out knocking on doors well we do and 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 the question i would have is uh, under the guise of school choice has the voucher program been enacted but It's really my belief that what we're seeing, and this is happening nationwide because Indiana is the most aggressive of the voucher programs, but it's happening in many, many states. And I I really think that business has decided that there's some money to be made in the business of education for for, for for-profit schools, and we're seeing really a shift away from public education toward privatization of, of uh, education for boys and girls across our country, and particularly even, I think, here in Indiana. 
And I think that's bad policy. I'll throw that little editorial comment in. Well, we have about three minutes to go, and I'm going to ask for some editorial comment, and particularly from you, David Schaefer, because you are retiring at the end of the year. (laughs) (laughs) So so you're you're pretty safe. And, um, you know, I would ask Kathy Friend and Larry DeBoer, and I don't know if Claire is a reporter. Yeah, right, right, right. She's not a commenter. Right, right, right. Um, But, you know, what what are, you know, what would be a key factor, a key issue that you would like to see addressed in the legislature as it, as it um, comes to public school funding or school funding? Well, I would like to, I'd like to see a, a, a very much a, both a rollback of, the, of this, this voucher program because I don't believe it's doing what it has been marketed to do. And then I would also like to see some recognition uh, of school districts that are in situations like we are in where we're facing declining enrollment and, 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 and yet we have those fixed costs that Larry mentioned and we have um, some limitations on what we can do in terms of reducing the expenses. I'd like, I'd like to see that addressed in the formula. Mm-hmm. Larry? Well, you know, I, I go back to the tax caps and when mm-hmm. the voters approve this thing and put it in the Constitution, so it's, it's a fact of life now. What did they mean when they said we want our property taxes lowered? Did they mean we want smaller government? Did they mean we want fewer services? Did they mean we want our government to be more efficient? Or did they mean we love our government and we think it's efficient, but we want to pay for it some other way? And I don't think we've had that discussion yet. And, and as, these, uh, as budgets get tight, uh, that discussion is going to have to happen at some point. Mm-hmm. All right, Kathy Friend. I agree with both of what they just both said, and, and, and completely on the voucher topic, and then on the uh, the property tax caps. I mean, school districts need an alternative funding source, um, particularly districts with um, a high percentage of circuit breaker compared to their allowed levy, um, so that they can provide those basic things like transportation. Um, so I would love to see that happen. I would also like to see the state provide additional funding for students who would really have um, major complexity issues like ELL, the English language learners. Um, there is not enough fun- sufficient funding to handle those students right, right now. And so that would be my wish that that get um, added into the formula the next time around. Okay. And in terms of going forward, Larry mentioned it, property tax caps, it was quickly put into the Constitution, the state Constitution. It's not just a law. So that would be very hard to reverse or it would take a lot. But this is a budget session starting in January, so the legislature could revisit the funding formula. So those are like avenues we could see these things change. Mm-hmm. All right. And it's an election year. We, you know, all sorts of interesting things going on right now. And I want to thank our guest today, um, Superintendent David Schaefer. Thanks. You've been with us several times before, and it's always been great. My and pleasure. Good, good luck in your retirement. Enjoy your retirement. Also, uh, Larry DeBoer, great to have you on. And Kathy Friend, nice to hear from Fort Wayne today. And also, as always, Claire, thanks for being here. And uh, Sarah, Sarah Whitmire, and Mike Pashkash, and Sophia Salaby. Uh, for all those people that help on the program, I'm Bob Zaltzberg. Thanks for listening. Noon Edition is a production of WFIU and The Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from School of Public Health Bloomington. Public Health Reimagined, addressing 21st century health challenges with a multidisciplinary approach to disease prevention, health promotion, and enhancing quality of life. Publichealth.indiana.edu. And Smithville Fiber, the Gigacity Company. 
fiber internet, HD, and digital IPTV in southern Indiana. More information at smithville.com.